0: Meditations on Mark is a production of the University Church in Oxford. For more information, visit universitychurch.ox.ac.uk. Welcome to the first of our Meditations on Mark, in which we'll be exploring the beginning of Mark's Gospel and reflecting on the way in which Mark tells his unsettling and challenging story.
1: Meditations on Mark The First Podcast The Beginning of the Gospel Mark, Chapter 1, Verse 1 The Beginning of the Good News of Jesus Christ, the Son of God As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptised by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news.
0: The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first verse of Mark's Gospel requires a bit of unpacking. Indeed, the 16 chapters which follow are in some ways an extended reflection and meditation on these few words of introduction. We expect the beginning of any narrative to disclose what it's about, even though we're offered little more than a chapter heading. People often look for a prologue at the beginning of each of the Gospels. John has that majestic prologue, in the beginning was the word. Luke writes an elegant preface for his patron Theophilus. Matthew sets the scene by tracing the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham. But what about Mark? Is the prologue the first 12 verses or the first 15 verses? Where does the prologue end and the narrative begin? Or does this one verse serve to set the scene before we immerse ourselves in the fast and breathless pace of Mark's narrative? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We use the phrase gospel or good news to translate the Greek term euangelion, and because we're familiar with the four canonical gospels or the way in which Paul uses the term gospel in his letters, It's tempting to think that Mark is simply referring to the document which follows. The beginning of the good news is a reference to this text, this Gospel of Mark. We imagine that the Gospel is a literary device. But we need to dig deeper than that. Early in the first century of the Common Era, when Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire, his subjects in the ancient city of Priene in Asia Minor celebrated his accession with these words, words which were preserved for posterity and inscribed in stone. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. The inscription tails off into broken stone, but the important point to recognise is that the reign of Augustus is described as the beginning of the good news the beginning of the gospel. Indeed, when many years later the emperor Vespasian ascended to the throne, one contemporary noted that every city celebrated the good news and offered sacrifices on his behalf. A succession of emperors were described as son of God. And so we see almost immediately that the language of this verse imitates and mimics the language of temporal power and prestige. And as the Gospel unfolds, we will see how profoundly Mark subverts it. The way the Roman Empire influences the language and imagery of this Gospel has long been noted by commentators. It's been one of the important factors in arguments about the date and provenance of the Gospel. Mark 13, the little apocalypse with its references to the abomination of desolation, contains not only resonances with the book of Daniel, but also refers to the destruction of the temple, which Jesus foretells in Mark 13, verse 2. Commentators argue that Mark was written either just before the destruction of the temple, while Jerusalem was under siege, or just after the year 70, as a response to the destruction by Titus. Commentators speculate about where the gospel was written, there's some external evidence to associate the Gospel with Peter and Rome. A previous generation of scholars argued that the Latinisms in the Gospel, with key loanwords from Latin, words like denarius, would associate the Gospel with Rome, while the Aramaisms, key Aramaic phrases, point to a Syrian provenance. Of course, more recent developments in postcolonial theory help us here the use of loanwords points to a form of linguistic hybridity. Words get adopted by colonial powers as well as colonial subjects. Think of curry in English. So Latinisms and Aramaisms don't really tell us much about the exact place where the words are being used. Nevertheless, the use of these Latinisms and Aramaisms speaks of the impact of colonialism. All we can say with any certainty is that the Gospel was written somewhere in the Roman Empire, and that context is important for understanding what follows. From the beginning of his Gospel, Mark is telling us that the Gospel subverts the established order of the world and turns it upside down. In the technical language of post-colonial theory, Mark's Gospel is littered with the language of colonial mimicry, but I think that it's important to emphasize that there is so much more going on in this gospel. From beginning to end, Mark's gospel speaks with breathless urgency of the coming kingdom, the dominion, the sovereignty of God. And to sustain this focus on the subversive emancipation of the gospel, Mark uses three important literary devices. First, he uses the witness of the Old Testament and intriguingly he assumes that his readers or listeners are familiar with the Old Testament. Note that almost immediately the evangelist quotes Isaiah the prophet. On closer inspection, of course, the quotation in verses 2 and 3 turn out to be a conflation of Malachi, Exodus, and Isaiah. Is this a schoolboy error? Or should we conclude like Origen, the greatest biblical commentator of the early church, that Mark is simply providing an overview, a brief summary, of the entire prophetic witness? Perhaps the clue lies in the selection of the prophet Isaiah. The themes of Isaiah, the return from exile, and the idea of a second exodus permeate the first few chapters of Mark's gospel. Indeed, the reference to Evangelion. Good News, Gospel, draw on Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 and chapter 52 verse 7, where the Greek translation of Isaiah uses the word euangelid to describe the herald of good tidings of good news. In chapter 61, Isaiah speaks of one who is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim release for the captive, and to comfort all those who mourn. These Old Testament prophecies alert us to the depth and range of the good news which is proclaimed in Mark's Gospel. These words are addressed to people who have experienced exile. Indeed, people who may find themselves yet again at the far end of exile, dispossessed, alienated, abused in need of rescue, listening with longing, sometimes straining to listen to the first far drums of the promise of salvation. And note that Mark's narrative begins in the wilderness. The wilderness was the setting for Israel's journey, that journey from slavery to the promised land. The wilderness was not simply a place on the margins. It was also a place of renewal and restoration. The River Jordan was the threshold for a new beginning, a second exodus. And it's no accident that the Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the first century, offers one account after another of various renewal movements, prophetic figures who appear in the wilderness calling Israel back to its founding charter, calling for repentance, proclaiming the promise of restoration and renewal. So when John the Baptist proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins at the River Jordan, we should not forget the density of the biblical allusions and references, which we find in the first few verses of Mark's Gospel. Secondly, Mark deploys a secrecy motif. This is an aspect of Mark's writing which has often been misunderstood. Note that the identity of Jesus is disclosed to the reader Or the listener from the very beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as the story develops, there is some confusion about the identity of Jesus. At times, the identity of Jesus appears to be hidden from his disciples, the authorities, even members of his own family. Scholars have speculated about a messianic secret, and while some of these theories may have been overstated, The effect of the secrecy motif is to create an understanding of the Messiah or Christ which is profoundly unsettling. This promised Messiah will confound our expectations. Thirdly, Mark's theological imagination is shaped by the language and imagery of eschatology and apocalyptic. It's in this context that we need to think about the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Of course, apocalyptic imagery comes into particular focus in Mark 13, often described as the little apocalypse. Recent scholarship of apocalyptic, particularly drawing on writings like the Book of Daniel and intertestamental literature, has tended to focus on the way in which these writings frequently subvert dominant cultural and political assumptions. Apocalyptic language may sound to us like a council of despair, it may hint at catastrophe and destruction. Indeed, biblical scholars tell us that apocalyptic literature arose in situations of oppression, its language and imagery often adopting the symbols of power and domination in the ancient world in order to subvert them. In the words of one recent scholar, apocalyptic reveals or discloses a hidden transcript. These narratives exploit a tension between what is hidden and revealed, and that is something which will come again into focus as we explore this gospel. The word apocalypse means unveiling or revelation. Apocalyptic may present us with vivid imagery depicting upheavals and calamities on a cosmic scale, but its purpose is always to alert us, to the real and to the not-so-real. On one level, it serves to tell us quite simply that the emperor has no clothes. But on another level, apocalyptic serves to disturb and provoke us, to stir us up. Maybe some of the time we only see what we want to see, but there are also times when we allow a little truth in. Often when the penny drops, it's painful occasionally it is sweet. When Jesus proclaims with breathless urgency that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, note that there is a tension between possibility and fulfilment in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We are invited again and again to repent, to see beyond the myths we live by, with all those half-truths masking suffering and injustice to see the truth of ourselves and the reality of the world we live in with ever greater clarity. We are invited to discover, in that kairos, in that time of fulfilment, in that poised moment of grace, the courage to hope and to believe the gospel. But Mark tells us that if we are to discover the truth of the Gospel, we need to be awake, we need to watch, we need to be alert, because we may be so busy looking over the horizon, waiting for our expectations to be fulfilled, that we miss the revelation of divine love right in our midst, as it is disclosed and revealed to us in the mystery of the cross. Thanks for listening. The Gospel was read by Elizabeth Dutton. The meditation was offered by Me Will Lamb. Music and sound design by Nicholas Alexander.